Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series by the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Jill Harper, Vice Chair of Communications on the CIA's Research Council. In this episode, we'll be talking about a new paper just published this September called Enabling the Future Provision of Long-Term Care in Canada. This paper is the first in the Ryerson University National Institute of Aging series called The Future of Long-Term Care. We will be discussing the next paper in this series in another podcast coming up soon, so keep an eye out for that. If you haven't seen this paper yet, you can find it by going to the National Institute of Aging's website. On the call today, we have Dr. Samir Sinha, who is an expert in geriatrics, a director of health policy research at the National Institute of Aging, and the lead author of this paper. Welcome, Dr. Sinha. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Jill. Could you start by telling us the motivation behind this study? Yeah, the motivation behind this study was really trying to address what the current and future needs of an aging population would be, especially around the provision of what we call long-term care. Because right now, when you think about the struggles we're having in terms of providing home and community care and long-term care in Canada, we realized that when we created our healthcare system over 50 years ago, we ensured things like primary care services and hospital-based services, but home and community care and care in nursing homes were just afterthoughts. And now this seems to be the area that's really holding the entire healthcare system hostage to a certain extent when we hear about challenges of hallway medicine throughout Ontario and other hospitals with people stuck in hospital, not able to get the home and community care or nursing home care they need. And so the fact that we're seeing challenges already at this time in terms of providing this sort of care And we know that our population is continuing to age and there's going to be twice as many older people within 10 to 15 years. It really gives us motivation to start having a good look at this issue and thinking about how we need to address it now and well in the future. We've talked about how collaboration can be so beneficial in research a lot lately. What organizations were involved in this particular study? So we had a number of organizations that were also equally interested in looking at this issue. The National Institute on Aging wanted to focus on what we call the future of long-term care. And then quickly, we had the Canadian Medical Association, Home Instead Senior Care, Essity. We also had Advantage Ontario. And we also had the Canadian Institute of Actuaries that were all, um, again, It seems like different groups and different audiences, but all looking at this issue from their particular perspective and really interested in seeing that this work was carried out so that we could get some answers that help us all move forward together. That sure is quite a variety and a really good example of collaborative research. What were some of your key findings in this project? So a number of the key findings were that when you actually look at how home and community care and nursing home care is provided across Canada, it actually varies significantly province to province, territory to territory, that we don't actually have a standardized way of providing this form of care across Canada. And then when you look at where Canada actually stands compared to the rest of the world, we're actually quite an outlier and not in a good way in a number of ways. Number one is when you compare us to the other OECD nations, we spend a relatively less proportion of our GDP, about half on average of what other OECD nations spend on the provision of what we call long-term care. When you also think about our spending increases, we're well below the mark on that level as well. So we don't spend much. We're not really increasing our spending overall. And when then you actually look at where we spend a lot of our money providing long-term care, Across Canada overall, 87% of our investment is around care for people in nursing homes versus in home and community care. 
But if you actually look at countries like Denmark, for example, you find it's almost flipped the other way, where they spend this majority of their funding around providing home and community care, and only a small proportion of it on the providing care nursing homes. So Canada really is an outlier compared to the rest of the world. And it helps us start to explain why we're really struggling with this issue of meeting the needs of an aging population. So we note that, for example, 430,000 Canadians report having unmet home care needs, and over 40,000 Canadians are on nursing home wait lists. Hallway medicine or people waiting in hospitals for care in the community in one form or the other, number about 15% of our available hospital beds right now. And these are unheard issues in countries like Denmark as well. So what we really showed was that we've got a number of challenges that are leading to this issue, and we also have some potential enablers there. But we really need to think as a country and consistently at our provincial and territorial levels, how we really re-envision the way we're thinking about long-term care and how we provide it in a way that can provide better patient and system outcomes as well. Often we hear so much about how much things will cost in the future, but from what you found, it sounds like this is not just a matter of how large the cost is, but it's also a matter of how the money is actually spent. Absolutely. So what we realize is that we're spending more money than other countries, but we're spending it mostly on keeping people in expensive institutions like nursing homes, when we have many other countries that have found that providing home care, for example, or other community services can be far cheaper and a way to actually avoid more expensive institutional care costs or the real expensive costs. We estimate it's about $2.4 billion, the annual cost of having people just waiting in acute hospitals for the care that's not available in the community. So you can imagine that it's not about just spending more money but it's actually about how we are actually spending our money in the first place. And another key finding we found from a report is there's a number of preventative things that we could be investing in that could help people stay healthy and independent in their communities longer so that they wouldn't have to become more expensive utilizers of these services as well. Nobody wants to be a dependent older adult who needs to be reliant on others and the state for services. But in essence, the way we've kind of organized our care and services right now and the way we fund them, we're almost kind of pushing people towards those more expensive and costlier areas of care. So what I'm hearing is that we need to change our attitudes toward long-term care and look at how we allocate funds differently. What does this mean in terms of next steps for the Institute? Have you approached governments and have you received any response from them if so? Yeah, very much so. I think when we do this work, we do this work because a lot of people are asking the same questions, like, what are we doing? How do we compare against the rest of the world? What's the scope of the issue in Canada right now? What will it look like in the future? And what do we need to do? Those are the questions that I get asked routinely in my work when I'm advising the federal government, or even in my current role as the seniors lead advisor for the government of Ontario. So these are questions that not only are provincial and territorial, but municipal municipal and federal governments are all asking. And I think the challenges right now is what we were finding was that people are sometimes looking at these issues in a piecemeal format. And another challenge is is that no one's really priced out uh, until we started doing this work, what care costs today and what that care will look like 30 years down the road. Ironically, we know how many older people there will be living in Canada 30 years from now. But until my colleague, Dr. Bonnie Jean McDonald, who led our second report in the series, did her work, 
people didn't actually have an accurate price tag for what if we just keep doing the same things over and over, this will cost us in the year 2050, if you will. And so that's where this work has really been helpful in terms of really putting it all into context, not only where we stand as a country, but where we stand against our global counterparts, but also giving us a window on what the future will look like if we don't do anything differently. And so I think the goal of this is a bit of a call to action that we're working towards our final report, where we're going to be able to create some evidence and form policy recommendations to help drive that agenda forward for ministries and governments across the country that really want to see action in this area. That's excellent. You mentioned Bonnie Jean McDonald's paper called The Future Cost of Long-Term Care in Canada, which is the next paper in this series. I know that that was released in October 2019, and as I mentioned at the beginning, we will also be publishing a podcast about that paper. Now for the third paper that you mentioned, The Call to Action, do you know when we can look forward to seeing that paper? Yeah, so that's a paper that we're actively working on right now. And in fact, we're actually going to be holding a national roundtable towards the end of November. And this is where we're inviting all of our sponsors and stakeholders and anybody who's interested to participate either in person or an online consultation. So we can make sure that we can test ideas and craft together our final report that really gives some clear direction after we've done a lot of context setting and issue exploration in papers one and two. So paper three, the third report in this series, will be coming out in early 2020. And that's really one where already people are seeing what some of the answers are from the first two reports, but we're really looking forward to really helping to tie it all together. And that way, folks who are interested in this issue are various associations who sponsored this work, and the governments who we've already been meeting with, who really have been interested in and very supportive of this work, all of us together can understand what could be a roadmap forward that both the government and non-government partners can actually work toward. So I'm curious what's already being done by the Canadian provinces and territories. Are there any examples of initiatives that you would like to highlight? Yeah, so what we really found was that because every province and territory is tackling long-term care in different ways, we found significant variation in terms of strategies, approaches, and where certain governments are prioritizing more around home care or institutional care in nursing homes. And so this was quite a fascinating tour as we went province to province and territory to territory, looking at what are the innovative things they've been up to, what have been their policy approaches, and what seems to be working. And what we actually found was, for example, there were some great examples on the East Coast in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island, where there's been a real focus on really trying to help support people to stay in their own homes by recognizing the needs of caregivers themselves. So those people, whether it be family or friends, caring for loved ones in need of care in the community. And this is by making sure that those, especially who are low income individuals, have access to things like home renovation programs or or supports for their caregivers that can allow them to more easily stay in their homes, getting support with things like snow shoveling or yard maintenance, because sometimes those are the little things that can tip you over the edge and you up in into a nursing home. We profile Ontario as an interesting case study because in Ontario, what they actually did was they deliberately back in 2012 started taking on a Denmark-like approach. So Denmark, about 30 years ago, 
started investing aggressively in the provision of more home and community care. And by doing that, they actually avoided building any new nursing homes over a 20 year period and closed thousands of hospital beds because they had more people that they were able to support with cheaper and more preferential home and community care. And so what we show is that Ontario actually has bucked the national trend because now two thirds of the spending on long-term care in Ontario are actually around home and community care versus a third on long-term care, where in Canada overall, 87% of the spending is on care, if you will, in nursing homes versus only 13% in home and community care. Quebec was also another interesting jurisdiction where we actually saw them prioritizing the provision of more home and community care, but using the tax system. And what they would simply do is they would simply say by creating government mechanisms that if you qualify for home and community care by meeting certain needs, you can then buy those services and then, if you will, write off those expenses or claim those expenses back through the tax system as well. So almost a way to allow people to figure out things on their own, which you could say in one way promotes autonomy, but really focuses less from the government doing things for people and really relying on the private market to help out. Has any province or jurisdiction figured it all out? And is any province like Quebec or Ontario or the East Coast not having headlines saying that they're woefully inadequately prepared to meet the needs of an aging population? The answer is no, because Ontario has a huge wait list of people waiting to get into long-term care homes. Quebec, there are headlines saying that they're having challenges meeting the home and community care needs in their own province. And then every province and territory is struggling. But I think this is because overall, the spending that we're providing in Canada is far less than what our OECD countries overall are spending. And number two, we still tend to prefer care that's not really preventative, but more responsive and more institutionally focused as well. So for example, Ontario recently announced over the past year that they want to simply build 30,000 new long-term care beds, even though those significant investments in home and community care over the previous decade saw the number of complex nursing home eligible people living in the community in Ontario more than double from 40 to over 90,000 people, outnumbering by far the number of people living in government-funded nursing homes in Ontario. So again, there's a lot of different approaches happening, and it was good that we could actually outline this here about that there are different approaches. And I think the one good thing about that is we're getting to see in a Canadian context what's working and what isn't. But what we now need to do is come to a determination of what is it that we want to accomplish, what will get us the most bang for our money, and then how do we do this in a much more consistent way. So this difference between Ontario and the rest of the country is really surprising to me. Seeing two-thirds of Ontario long-term care implemented as home care versus only 13% at the national level is really quite a discrepancy. But home care certainly does look like a possible way forward for this type of long-term care. Absolutely. And I think this is the challenge because right now, because there are people waiting on our nursing home wait list, for example, it's very easy for governments to be lulled into saying, well, well, then we'll simply just build more nursing home beds. The key thing is that we've shown in our paper, too, is that when people are stuck in hospital, frail older adults, they're more likely to be placed into a nursing home from a hospital setting than from a community setting. Almost because if we don't actually have more home and community care available, sometimes it's just easier to apply to a nursing home than it is getting people back out into the community in their own homes and really trying to figure out what we can do. The Canadian Institutes of Health Information has also shown that about one in five people in a Canadian nursing home 
probably could still be supported in their own communities with available home and community care services. So it's showing that right now that simply building more beds isn't always the solution. But when we're still underfunding our home and community care systems, and we still have long wait lists for nursing homes, I sometimes think that politicians can get seduced into simply thinking that the easiest thing to do then is just simply build more beds. And sometimes don't remember the gains that we've made, such as the gains that were made in Ontario over the last 10 years. When we think about those significant increases in home and community care that almost flipped our spending um, mm -hmm. in the province are actually supporting twice as many nursing home eligible people there. My argument would be that if we actually put a lot of the money we're spending, building 10,000, 15,000, 30,000 more beds, every time you build a bed, that's $150,000. And mm. the carrying cost for someone living in a long-term care bed or a nursing home bed in Ontario is about $177 a day. Home care is about a third of the cost and doesn't actually have capital costs when people can sleep in their own beds. So there's a whole economic argument here that sometimes people kind of miss along the way when things get a bit politicized as well. That's why we wanted to add a lot of academic rigor and evidence to this conversation so that maybe we could take a step back, breathe a bit, and then say, okay, what do we need to do and how do we make it happen? Mm -hmm. And back to your point about home care, I understand from Bonnie Jean's paper as well that much of home care is provided by unpaid people like family or friends. So I would imagine that giving these unpaid people a bit of a break would help seniors be able to stay in their homes for longer, even if they end up in institutionalized facilities eventually. Absolutely. And I think that was, thank you for mentioning that, because that was another big focus that we found is that a lot of caregivers out there, so there are about 8.1 million Canadians right now who identify as being an unpaid caregiver, if you will. And so these are individuals who might see themselves simply as daughters or sons or husbands or wives or friends of a person who needs actual care. They don't actually think of themselves as unpaid caregivers, but these unpaid caregivers save our current healthcare systems billions upon billions of dollars a year in costs that would be shifted to government if these individuals weren't around during their support. And I think one thing we point out in our report, and I think Bonnie Jean also explores in her work, is that if we're taking these individuals for granted and we're not providing them the right supports that they might need, then absolutely it's very hard for them to want to or to be able to stay in an unpaid caregiving role, because these can represent enormous sacrifices that people make to care for a loved one in the community. But if they burn out or they're not being adequately supported, you could imagine that that person can easily end up in a nursing home that much sooner. So there's growing recognition now that we have to identify these people, we have to better support them, especially when one in three working Canadians is working and balancing unpaid caregiving duties. We identify, and our work through the National Institute on Aging has shown that unpaid caregivers, especially those who are still in the workforce, this can actually represent a significant economic productivity issue if it's not well addressed. And I, th I don't want to steal Bonnie Jean's thunder, but when she actually did her work that's featured in paper two, it really just showed that with changing demographics, so a declining fertility rate and more older people in general, we already know that there's not enough, there are a lot of people who already report having unmet uh, needs now. But you can imagine in the future, we're going to need far more people providing caregiving support and doing more than they're currently doing now 
if we're going to meet the unpaid caregiving needs that we predict people might need 20, 30, 40 years from now as well. I think that all of us have a tendency to focus more on the financial side of long-term care, but could you highlight some of the non-financial issues? Yeah, so some of the things that we've also focused on is that, again, when we think about long-term care, we need to think about how people, that, that there are a lot of things other than just the finances of what is it that you're providing and how do you fund the care that people need? Because first and foremost, we found that for individuals out there and their caregivers, we often don't really help them navigate the system well by letting them know what's easily available and what they can take advantage of in terms of the services. So a lot of people are navigating in the dark. We also find that for care providers, we often pay people who are working in long-term care, whether it be in home and community or even in nursing homes, far less than they would make for those same care providers to be working, say, in a hospital. So because you're essentially doing lonely, sometimes isolating work, and you're doing it for far less money, you can imagine why we have massive turnover of staff working in the home and community care and long-term care sector overall. It's a real challenge. And we also don't do a really good job of making sure that our workforce is equipped with the skills and the knowledge they need to better provide the care, especially for frail older adults as well. So this is where we know that we actually have to do more to identify what these other needs are so that individuals, unpaid caregivers, care providers, but also thinking about leveraging technology. Other things are ones that we need to start focusing on to create a much more robust and cohesive system of care. In this paper, you mentioned the concept of public long-term care insurance. Can you elaborate a little bit on this for us? Yeah, so one of the things that we're seeing is that the challenge with long-term care as well is, just like healthcare in general, it's hard to say which one of us is going to get the cancer, which one of us is going to have a heart attack or a stroke. We don't really know. And that's why most OECD nations have really moved towards developing a universal healthcare system or an approach to care that's universal in nature. Because in Canada, we actually have what we call Medicare, what we hold dear to our hearts, because we don't know who's going to get sick. And we don't want that unexpected surprise to actually bankrupt them. That's kind of the whole premise of our universal healthcare system. The ironic thing, though, is that when you actually look at our universal system of care, we're a curious country because we're one of the only OECD countries, we're the only one with the universal healthcare system that doesn't actually include medications or pharmacare as part of our universal system of care. And unlike a number of Western European nations, we don't actually enshrine the provision of long-term care into our system as well. So really, at the end of the day, People know that my hospital care will be paid for. I don't have to pay to see a doctor. My medications are kind of covered when I'm older, so that's okay. But if you need home care, if you're the person who gets dementia and you're the person who's going to need a lot of care at home and you don't have a family and you need to have that care, who's going to pay for that? And what we do know right now is that the majority of Canadians, so when you look at Canadians who are not retiring with a defined benefit or defined contribution workplace pension plan, the average Canadian who doesn't actually have a pension beyond Canada Pension Plan, Old Age Security, Guaranteed Income Supplement, those individuals without a workplace pension are retiring on average of $3,000 in the bank. 
that's quite sobering when you look at it because most people say, when we looked at some of the survey data that's been done over the last few years, most people say that they're not actually prepared financially or personally to care for a loved one who might need long-term care. And so that's why a number of countries and even the state of Washington in the United States have now actually proposed long-term care insurance systems. This is a mechanism, like just like we make contributions towards our CPP or our employment insurance, this is another kind of insurance scheme where everybody pitches in a little bit of money so that down the road, because we're never sure who's going to be those high needs individuals who will need long-term care or intensive long-term care, that funding can be available to meet your needs. And in countries like Australia, for example, they've actually, they don't necessarily have long-term care insurance, but they actually have a well-defined social contract where everybody in Australia knows that if you do need to have publicly funded long-term care, whether that be care in a home or an institution, it's capped at a yearly amount and it's actually capped at a lifetime amount. So for example, you would at least know that, hmm, if I'm gonna be that individual who might need long-term care, I need to save up $50,000 because that's what my government will expect me to contribute should I need long-term care. And once I pay my fair share, if you will, or the expected share that I'm supposed to contribute, then the government will kick in the rest. We don't have any social contract in Canada right now. And really what we do have is a postcode lottery. And that's why with long-term care, we're realizing that it's hard to predict who will actually need this. And that's why a number of countries are moving towards this idea of a payroll tax or a funding system where that way we pool our risk for long-term care and that way we can actually have funded. So I'm actually, after working on this paper, I'm actually quite in favor of the idea of creating a long-term care insurance scheme for Canada. And I'll tell you that Quebec actually about less than 10 years ago, was actually very much looking at this as a specific policy direction to actually create what they were going to call autonomy insurance. Because again, all provinces and territories are struggling with this issue right now, especially when most Canadians don't actually have a lot of money saved up in the bank to meet their own needs. So that will by default fall on the state. And right now that tends to fall to very expensive models of care, like care in nursing homes. Exactly. So you mentioned workplace pension plans, and we all know that workplace pension plans are on the decline. So younger people who are working now and have years before they retire typically don't have workplace pension plans to rely upon. So if these people one day do need long-term care, there isn't really a ton of support for them. Absolutely. And I think part of the problem, too, is because as we're young and growing up, we're always used to whenever we need health care, you know, as young people, we probably need to see a doctor or we probably need to go to a hospital, for example. And so we never see a bill because pretty much mm -hmm. everything need is kind of covered. The rude awakening for a lot of people is some more and more Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck saying, OK, well, the one thing I don't need to do is save up for my health care because nobody really needs to save up for their health care in our universal system up to the age of 65. The challenge is, is that after the age of 65, when your likelihood of needing long-term care starts to increase significantly, that's where people then get that rude awakening to saying, surprise, you know, that universal thing you love called Medicare, here's the catch. It doesn't actually fund, it doesn't provide universal coverage 
for your nursing home or home and community care costs. The government actually only provides X amount. So if you want more than that, you've got to pay out of pocket. And most Canadians, again, who don't have a defined benefit or defined contribution workplace pension plan are retiring without a lot of money in the bank and without that ability to pay for the care and services they need. And so this is why part of the work that was being done to make sure that our Canada pension plan system could be augmented. Because we know Canadians, unfortunately, are not great savers, if you will, especially when you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's hard to be a good saver. And that's why there was a deliberate move to say, well, by actually changing the Canada pension plan contributions, we'll at least make sure that people, instead of having, say, a quarter of their salary replaced through CPP, can have up to a third of their salary replaced in future. And that's a way to try and make sure that we create more financial security later in life. The challenge is, is that's still not going to basically meet our long-term care costs should we be a person who's in need of significant long-term care. And that's not going to be the majority of us. It's going to be a minority of us. But when those care costs come, if you're not living on a million-dollar home, then you know, you start realizing that these costs can add up very quickly. They're very unpredictable. And if you don't have that money, then you might be living in a hospital or you might actually end up having to go to a government-funded nursing home because care in the community will not be possible for you. And I think a lot of us don't think about our futures in that way and don't appreciate what our system does and doesn't cover right now and why we need to start thinking about a good approach to how we provide long-term care and what our game plan is going to be. You're certainly right that there needs to be some education for the public around that as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I just really have been thrilled that already the work to date has gotten a lot of support from stakeholders in government, but also for people across the long-term care sectors. We were thrilled to see how well our first report came out. I know Dr. Bonnie Jean McDonald's report really costing out our current and future costs for long-term care was also incredibly received by governments and other stakeholders as well. And so we're thrilled that we're getting a lot of good engagement and ideas coming forward so that we can think about what would we recommend towards our provincial, territorial, and federal and municipal governments about a game plan that they can really consider as, as a game plan or a roadmap about how do we think about long-term care moving forward in a growing um, and evolving global context as well. So it's been a lot of fun working on this. This really has been a labor of love, but I think it's helping to spark some important conversations and thinking that will hopefully land us in a better state moving forward. It was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for joining and for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. As I mentioned, we'll be publishing a podcast about the next paper in the National Institute of Aging series very shortly, so keep an eye out for that podcast. As a reminder, if you want to learn more about CIA research, please visit cia-ica.ca and select the Research tab on the top. Within that tab, you can choose Research Projects, and you can also find a link to share your research ideas if you have any ideas or comments. My name is Jill Harper, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Seeing Beyond Risk.